Okay, good morning everyone. We have the uh, privilege, first of all, it's great to resume the Parsha class. I'm sorry we've had a conflict a number of weeks in a row, but um, hopefully we can continue now. People here through the summer? Yes. Okay, great. So we'll continue to learn Torah together. Anyone leaves the Parsha Shirim, go up on YU Torah, you're welcome to listen online. And also, I was asked to give a plug for our new uh, Amuna WhatsApp group. If you'd like to get a daily message of Amuna, if you use WhatsApp, then please email me your WhatsApp phone number, which is your cell phone number that you use WhatsApp on, and you'll sign up. It's a once-a-day message. We try to make sure that there's no other posting going on, just one message a day, a uh, inspirational message to bolster our sense of emuna. Okay, this week we have the privilege of beginning Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Bamidbar, the Parsha of Bamidbar, and we continue to plow forward, not only in our study of Torah, not only in the development of the Parsha, but we're plowing forward together with the Jewish people on their journey. And as we've been discussing all along, the Jewish people are developing, they're maturing as a people. Sefer Bereshis represented the Jewish people as a family. The birth, the development, the emergence of a family. And uh, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, sibling rivalry, parenting issues, infertility issues, dreams and shattered dreams... Parenting and favoring, sibling rivalry, and uh, everything you can imagine in terms of family conflict is contained in Sefer Bereshis. We have a family that needs to figure it out, that needs to be able to work it out. And of course, that's how Sefer Bereshis concludes. We bless our children to be like Ephraim and Menashe because they are the first generation in this family who do not experience sibling rivalry, even though their order is, uh, is changed. The younger one, nevertheless, is able to get along with the older one. The younger one gets the, uh, gets the greater respect. The older one, rather, is not jealous of the younger one. And we bless our children to be able to have a family of peace and harmony that is able to not only coexist, but is able to love one another and uh, live without discord. Last night was Unity Day here in Boca. I don't know how many of you were there. About 2,000 people. It was a very beautiful event. So I was asked to speak about the role of love in unity. And I spoke about learning to love people we don't like. You don't have to like everybody. Like is an emotion. Love is a decision. Love is a verb. That we're obligated to love even those that we don't like. And that just as in our own family, not me, but I'm sure you, in your own family have someone you don't like. I love everybody in my family. But uh, I'm sure sometimes, uh, you know, it's in your immediate family, in your in-law family, it's a cousin, it's at a family reunion, there's someone you don't like, you just, you know, they suck the air out of the room, they have a noxious personality, they grate on you, you don't approve of their lifestyle, you can't begin to understand, you know, how they could root for the Red Sox, whatever the issue is, but there's something, there's people in your family you don't like. So just like in a family, you have to love even those you don't like, so too in our greater family, Kla Yisrael, the Jewish people, we are ultimately, we are essentially a family. And we have to learn to love even those that we don't like. So that was the development of the Jewish people as a family, say for Beresha. Shmus represents our emergence as a nation. We go down into the Kura Barzal of Mitzrayim, the fiery furnace that hardens and shapes and molds us. We go through trauma and we emerge from that trauma a people. We went down Shivim Nafesh Yardul Mitzrayim. We went down to Egypt, a family. And we came out of Egypt, a nation, a people. And now here in Sefer Bamidbah, and Shmos represents the maturation, the growth, the development of that people. And here in Sefer Bamidbar, if Shmos represents the birth of a people, we were newborn people, Bamidbar represents our adolescent phase. An adolescent phase, somebody who lives in a home with a significant number of adolescents, I can tell you, adolescent phase is filled with uh, complaints, rebellion, disobedience, and uh, challenging times. There could be conflict as people are growing and figuring out who they are and who they are among others. And that's what Sefer Bamidbar represents is a lot of that growth and a lot of that change. And those are the stories that we are going to see throughout the Sefer. So let's do as we always do our summary of the Parsha. And then we'll go back and dive into some specific psukim. So Sefer Bamidbar, Parshas Bamidbar begins with the census, the counting of the Jewish people in the Midbar. We'll get into that in a moment. Why we were counted specifically here, who was in the count, why were those excluded from the count. And that 
represents the beginning, the redundancy, the repetition of these names over and over again, takes up a good part of the beginning of the parsha. The Levim are then excluded from the count. Achas matelavi losif code. The Esrosham losisa. Levi is not counted besoch b'nei Yisrael among the rest of the Jewish people. The Levim, the tribe of Levi, has its own census. They are counted separately. And why is that? We'll get back to in a moment. We then have the um, formations of the encampment. We have the directions of exactly how they are to encamp. Tribes had their own flags, they had their own icon, their own logo. In every bar mitzvah I see now. It used to be a kid just turned 13. You celebrate, they turned 13. Now the child is a brand. They're a logo. They have a logo and they make special yarmulkes. They make a logo of their name. The child has become a logo. They've become a brand at 13 years old. It's a lot of pressure. So, had a lo- each tribe had a logo. Ish al diglobo osos avosom Yisrael. They had a flag, they had a logo, they had an icon, and they sat in four formations. North, south, east, and west. The flags within those formations, where they were, and where they were placed, had an incredible impact on who they were. Again, we'll get back to this as well, but it could have led to tremendous sense of divisiveness. To have everyone with a separate flag and a logo, to have everyone with their own interests pursuing their personal, their tribe's needs, encamped separately and distinctly, could have led to tremendous divisiveness. What kept them all together? Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky asked this in his Emes Lyakov. Why didn't they splinter? Everyone, every group under their flag, under their encampment, why didn't they divide into separate nations, competing, feuding nations? So Yaakov Kamenetsky explains, because if you picture the encampment, north, south, east, and west, what was at the middle? What sat in the middle when they would stop and when they would travel? In the middle, said Rav Yaakov, was the Mishkan. And as long as the Mishkan is the center of our circle, as long as we are all devoted to the same cause, as long as we are all promoting and pursuing the same ends, then it allows for our differences, it allows for our diversity. Diversity leads to divisiveness if everyone has their own agenda. If everyone is trying to advance another cause. But if we all have the same agenda, if Torah is at the middle, if the Mishkan is in the middle, if the community is in the middle, then diversity is a wonderful, wonderful thing. There's plenty of room to have multiple minyanim. There's plenty of room to have people who believe and think and observe and come from different perspectives. There's plenty of room for all the different shades, all of the different perspectives, if we are all focused, if at the center of our circle, if at the center of our own circles of our lives is us, our ego, we're going to get to that again when we get to the beginning of the parsha. we go back in a moment, then splintering, feuding, conflict, but if the Torah says, Rav Yaakov, if the Torah is at the center of the circle, then there can be not only peace and harmony, but the diversity, which is captured under the umbrella of unity, can work in incredible, incredible ways. So here we have the encampments. Ruvain is on the south, Ephraim is on the west, Dan is to the north. We have all of the, uh, all of the encampments. There is a peculiar thing about these encampments. The uh, relationships that resulted from the different assignments about where exactly to encamp, most of them functioned well. Most of them worked out well. But the family of Kahas was an exception. Kahas camped on the south of the Mishkan. Right, we read it on page 734. And so on and so forth. The family of Kahas was to the south of the Mishkan. And immediately adjacent to them were the tribe of Reuven, as we just read. A short time later, a short time after this happens, Korach is going to emerge. What tribe does Korach come from? What family does he come from? Korach comes from the family of Kahas. Korach leads, he inspires this revolt, this rebellion against Moshe and ultimately against the Ribbon Shalom. And what happens? There are casualties in this rebellion. Members of the family of Ruvain, who are living next door to Korach and Kahas, Members of the family of Reuven are influenced to join the rebellion. And indeed, most of those who die as a result of that rebellion, the plague that ensues, come not from the family of Kaas, but come from the family of Reuven. And the Medrash Davka and our parasha tells us, Oyle Rasha, Oyle Shechino. Woe unto the wicked person and their neighbor. Reuven didn't do anything wrong. Reuven did not lead a rebellion. 
Reuven's only sin was buying a house next door to Kahas. They lived in the same block. They lived in the same development. And as a result, because of that neighbor and the wickedness, Reuven faltered, and more members of the tribe of Reuven died than the tribe of Kahas. Now I, if I came from Reuven, I would be pretty bitter. Turn to the Rebbe Shalom and you say, You put me next door to Kahas? You told me where to live. You assigned my camping. You assigned my residence. You put me next to such a terrible influence, a toxic influence, and it cost me so many members of my tribe? Because Baruch Hu tells you where to live. Implicitly, aren't you entitled to think that's the best place for you to live? You have to anticipate that you're going to sacrifice so many members of your tribe. So Rav Avigdor Nevensashli to the Rav of the Iratika of the old city of Yerushalayim and his Sefer suggests an answer which is actually so important to us. He says, you know, sometimes we find ourselves living in a certain neighborhood. Sometimes we find ourselves in an environment or exposed to certain influences and we feel, you know what? God landed me in this house. I was supposed to fly back. I looked at all these other houses. Then last minute they told me this house and it turns out it worked out perfectly and it was Mina Shamayim. Hashem put me in this house. Hashem put me in this job. Hashem gave my kids those friends. Hashem gave me these friends, these people I happened to meet. Sometimes we think that it's Hashkacha Pratis. It's divine intervention that put me in that environment or placed me exactly there. Says Rav Nevensah, what we see from here is you can never, ever let down your guard. Never, ever rest on our laurels. Never, ever think that, wow, because the Kaddish Baruch Hu put me here, this environment will never have an impact or an influence negatively on me. You can never be apathetic. You can never be indifferent. You can never be unaware of the pressures or of your surroundings or of the potential. So true, Kaddish Baruch Hu told Ruvain to live next to Kahas. Kaddish Baruch Hu never told Ruvain he had a license to stop being careful, to acting judiciously, to living life with a filter, to being cautious with everyone around him. So Rebbe Shalom is not to blame for Ruvain's loss in the episode with Korah. Ruvain, we always have to be responsible. No matter how divinely ordained we think our circumstance is, we can never ever be indifferent. We always have to be careful. And when we're not, we are the ones to blame. And that's why the Mishnah Navo says, Harcheik nishachin ra, the altis chaber Russia. Distance yourself from a bad neighbor, and don't connect to a wicked person. Distance from a bad neighbor, and don't connect, don't be friends with a Russia. It's interesting, when it comes to a Russia, we're only cautioned, just don't be friends, don't be friends with the Russia. When it comes to the neighbor, distance. Wouldn't I think that the Russia would be more of a threat than the Shachenra? The Russia's a Russia, a wicked, wicked person. Wicked person just says, don't be friends with? The Shachinra, the bad neighbor, is not an inherently bad person. And yet it says, distance yourself. So maybe that's the answer. The Russia is an overtly evil, wicked, bad, nefarious person. You can see it. They wear it on the sleeve. They're wicked. They're bad. They're just... Uh, you know it. So you're just told, don't be friends with them. Because you see what you are. is what You, you see what they are. But a Shachinra, a bad neighbor, is a much stronger threat. Why is a bad neighbor a much greater threat? Because the bad neighbor is not necessarily a bad person. The bad neighbor could be a good person with some bad habits or has some ideas or influences you in a negative way. They could be a good person. They just speak a lot of Lush and Hara. They just instigate a lot of machlokas. They just experiment with things that you shouldn't be doing or expose you to things you shouldn't be exposed to. They're not necessarily a bad person. And that's why... That's why the Mishnah Chazal have to say, distance yourself. They're more dangerous because they're not necessarily overtly bad. Therefore, it's a much more, uh, a greater threat. Someone can be classified as a bad neighbor without even doing anything. The Gemara Bracha says, Anyone who has a shul in their town and they don't go there to daven is considered to be a bad neighbor. You have the opportunity to participate in community. You have the opportunity to contribute to the minion. And you don't attend, you're a bad neighbor. So the Prisha, commentary on the tour, asks, what's the measure of a bad neighbor? 
And he explains based on another statement in the Gemara. The Gemara says, when ten people get together to daven, the Shekhinah rests on them. Ten people gather, you have a minion, so the Shekhinah comes. So a good Shekhin is somebody who draws the Shekhinah. A good Shekhin is somebody who in combination with you makes God's presence felt more intensely, exhibits godliness. A bad neighbor, a Shekhin Ra, ignores or dismisses or pushes away the Shekhinah. So you can be a bad neighbor without even doing anything. You just aren't contributing to bringing godliness. You're not part of community. You're not leading. You're not part of the mission of the Jewish people. You're, you're innocuous. You're benign. How am I a bad neighbor? And the answer is by being passive and benign and not part of our mission, that in itself is, is a bad neighbor. You know, the uh, second day of Sivan, which is tomorrow, is a very special day. It has a special name. It's called the Yom HaMiyuchas. Today is Rosh Chodesh. Chodesh Tov, everybody. Tomorrow is the Yom HaMiyuchas. You know, we often refer to the term Yichas to describe a prestigious lineage. But Yichas literally means a connection. Yichas is an association or a relationship. So the second day of Sivan is Yom HaMiyuchas because it has good associations and it has good neighbors. Who are the neighbors of the second day of Sivan? Well, the day before is Rosh Chodesh Sivan. And what comes the day after tomorrow? Shloshes Yimei Hagbalah. The three days of anticipation, the three days of preparation for Shavuos. So this day, this day, Yom HaMiyuchas, it has a status. There's nothing special about tomorrow. Nothing unusual. There's nothing that stands out about tomorrow. And yet it has a status of known as Yom HaMiyuchas. Why? Because it's surrounded by good neighbors. And good neighbors is enough to give you a good status. Rosh Chodesh before, Shlosh Hashimei afterwards, and that makes for a good neighbor. So it begs the question, not only what neighbors are we surrounded with, but what kind of neighbors are we to our neighbors as well? So all of this is Rav Nevensal's pshat, Rav Nevensal's perspective on why Ruvain would have no taina on the Ribbon Shalom. Ruvain can't complain that they were assigned a placement next to Kahas. It was Ruvain's fault for letting their guard down. They were never entitled to do so. Okay, the Tarpasha continues with the progeny of Aaron and Moshe. Elah told us Aaron and Moshe, Biyom Dibar Hashem as Moshe, Pahar Sinai, were reminded of their children. Since we just reviewed the entire count, we uh, review the count specifically when it comes to their family as, uh, as well. We have the appointment of the Levium, and the Levium replaced the firstborn. Um, the, Levi, the firstborn ultimately were the ones who were designated to have the status. But they failed in their mission, and so they were placed by the Levium. The census of the Levium is done separately. We have the halachas of the Bechor. The uh, significance of the firstborn of the Jewish people. We, the Jewish people, are called the firstborn of God. And we also place great emphasis on our Bechor. And we slaughtered the Bechor in... We, God, slaughtered... Makas Bechoros in Mitzrayim, which begs the question, what's this obsession with the firstborn? Our firstborn have a separate status. Firstborn of Egypt, we're slaughtered. God calls us, as a, we as a people, are the firstborn of the members of the world. What's this obsession with the firstborn? It's a topic for another time. Okay, that is Parshas Bamidbar. Let's go back and look at some second. By Dever Moshe, page 726 in the Art Scroll Stone. God speaks to Moshe. Where does he speak to him? Bimidbar. Where is the Midbar? The desert. Bimidbar Sinai, the Sinai Desert, in the Oomoed, on the first of the second month, in the second year, from when they left Egypt. And this is what he told them. Take a count. Take a census of the entire people of Israel according to their families, according to their father's house, by number of the names. Every male according to their head count. Okay, so let's go back. So this is the introduction of the census. But the mitzvah to do the census is given where specifically? In the Midbar. What's the significance of the Midbar? Why specifically here in the desert? So look at the Rashbam. 
Says the Rashbam, Kol Dibro Shinemru Bishon Rishon Kodim Shukam and Mishkam, Kosobahem Bahar Sinai. All the commandments that were given in the first year before the Mishkan was erected were identified or associated as having been given Bahar Sinai. They extend from the mitzvahs that were given at Mount Sinai. Aval Mishukam and Mishkan Beachad Chodesh Bishon Shnia, Lo Yomar Bahar Sinai, Aval Bimidbar Sinai, Boomoid. But from when the Mishkan was instituted on the first of the second, of the first uh, of the month in the second year, it no longer associates with Harsinai, but now in the Sinai Desert, the Olmoid. Now that you have a Mishkan, you have an Olmoid. In other words, prior to the Mishkan function, you associated the giving of mitzvos with where geographically where mitzvos given Harsinai. But now that you have a Mishkan, now that you have a the Mishkan is the Recreation of Harsinai, the mobile Harsinai. Harsinai gave us a feeling of the intense presence of the Ribbonah Shalom. Harsinai was the greatest revelation. Harsinai was the capital of spirituality. So, Kosh created a mobile Harsinai through the Mishkan that we would be able to revisit and we'd be able to re experience the same sensation that we had or a similar sensation to that which we had at Harsinai. So prior to the Mishkan, Mish- mitzvahs were associated with having been given at Harsinai. Once the Mishkan was established, now it's identified and associated with the Mishkan. So where is the Mishkan? Bimidbar Sinai. So Bimidbar Sinai in the Sinai Desert, from the Oamoed, that's where mitzvahs are directed from. So how does the Rashbam prove his point? He says, in a moment when we're going to identify the children of Aaron, we reference four children Bahar Sinai. Why? Because at Har Sinai, Aaron had four children. Once you get to Bimidbar Sinai, Aaron no longer has four children. Nadav and Aviyu have died, they're untimely, tragic deaths. But now Aaron has two children. Okay, so that is the Rashbam's explanation. That is the Rashbam's explanation. But the Medrash, the Gemara, Chazal, the Balaturim references it here. Look at the Balaturim. Le'el minei ksiv eila mitzvos, v'samech le'e b'midbar sinai. Before, at the end of Ayikra, it says, eila mitzvos. And now it says, b'midbar sinai, lomar, im ein adem mesim atzmo k'midbar, eina yacholei da Torah u'mitzvos. If you don't turn yourself into a desert, you are not a candidate to truly receive Torah and to observe mitzvos. That's the Medrashin B'midbar Rabbah. Parsha Aleph Zayin. Komish eina osa atzma k'midbar hefker, eina yachol liknos es hachachma v'hatorah. Right, the Balaturim just uh, quotes, this is the full Medrash. Whoever does not turn themselves into a barren desert cannot acquire wisdom in Torah. L'kach nemar b'midbar sinai. That's the med- that's the medrash. What does that mean? What does it mean to turn yourself into a barren desert? Barren desert is a scary place. No water, no resources, no sustenance, no life. You have to live in danger in order to acquire Torah. You have to live vulnerable, susceptible. You have to live that you could die any moment in order to acquire Torah. The Gemara in Erevin and Daf Nundalad Medalaf also expands on a similar theme. Omar of Masna, Matana, sing this in Zmiros, Matana, from the wilderness to Matana, in the list of the journeys from one place to another, the Pasuk says, Matana. So the Gemara Erevin says, what does it mean, Mimibar Matana? Imesim Adam Atzimu Kamidbar Zeh, Sha'akol Doshenbo, Talmudo Miskayim Biyado. Vimlav Ein Talmudo Miskayim Biyado. If you make yourself into a barren wilderness, which everyone treads on, which everyone walks through, a barren wilderness is a place of humility, humble, low to the ground. Then, Talmudo Miskayim Biyado, you can retain your Torah. But if you don't, Ein Talmudo Miskayim Biyado. You have to be impoverished, uncomfortable, vulnerable, in order to acquire Torah. What is Bimidbar? This is the lesson of Bimidbar. This is the message. You know, it's not a coincidence. Taisvis at the end of Megillah says that we dafka read Parshas Bamidbar before the holiday of Shavuos. 
Tosus gives a reason that we should not read, it would be inauspicious to read the Klolos in Bechukosai, to read the Tochacha and then go into Shavuos. You read the Klolos and you go into a Yontif coming off of the harsh rebuke and the graphic consequences and the, nah, it's not a very nice way to go into Yontif. So therefore Chazal manipulated Kriyasa Torah, the Torah reading, to make sure that Shavuos didn't come after Bechukosai, we get Bamidbar in there before we read. Maybe that's why we didn't, uh, I don't know, catch up with the double Parsha, manipulate the Torah reading. So why do we have to read Parsha's Bamidbar before Shavuos? Not only to avoid the Klolos, but is there something about Sefer Bamidbar, Parsha's Bamidbar, which can inspire, which is relevant to our holiday of Shavuos, A. And B, again, what does this mean that in order to receive Torah and mitzvos, you have to make yourself into a Midbar? You have to be uncomfortable, poor, impoverished? No. So I think the answer is, man by nature, people by nature are very selfish. And that's a good thing. Because if we weren't self-centered, if we weren't self-interested, then we would never advance our own lives. We have to live. We have to have an interest in living. We have to do what's necessary to live. And that's a healthy thing. That's a healthy thing. But what happens as a result of the self-interest is that we become self-centered. And we become egotistical, and we only do things that seem to be in our own interest. Life becomes about us, I, me, what I want, my interest, what makes me happy, my needs, my satisfaction. But if I'm going to have a relationship, if I'm going to connect with someone else, if you're going to have what Buber called the I-thou relationship, then there has to be room for the other person. You have to be willing to sublimate, you have to be willing to submit, you have to be willing to diminish your I in order to make room for someone else. The prerequisite to being able to receive, the prerequisite to being able to accept influence, as Stephen Covey talks about in The Seven Habits, being able to accept influence from others. You don't always have all the answers. You're not always right. You're not always the authority. You're not always in charge. You're not always telling other people what to do. But the ability to receive influence you know what, you're right. I learned from you. You know what, that is a better way of doing it. You know what, that is what we should do now. You know what, even though I don't want to do it your way, we're going to do it your way. The ability to have room for another requires somebody to be able to, to be flexible, but you have to be able to diminish, to be mitzamtzim, your sense of I, yourself. Gemara Baruchos Samach Gimel says, Amar Eish how do you know that Torah can only be retained by somebody who's memis atzmo aleha? So classically, traditionally, we've always explained this to mean you can only receive Torah when you toil in it. I have an article in the Why You To Go on Shavuos that came out this week, and it's all about the importance of last week's parasha, B'chukosai, Shetiyah, Melem Torah. It's wonderful that we can listen to thousands of shiurim on, on the internet. It's wonderful that we can sit passively in fascinating lectures, which are more edutainment. Today, that's the term now. It's not eduta- education, right? Our lives, we've become, we've become habituated that we, we need entertainment. So it's edutainment. It's fanta- I don't mean to put it down at all. It's fantastic. Read the English side of the Ars Scroll Gemara and read books in every language you want and listen passively while exercising or driving or cooking or shopping. All that's amazing and halavai, more people would learn Torah in those ways. But real Torah is acquired, real Torah is acquired, or the real acquisition of Torah only happens, Mishamemis Atzmolah. Amelim Batorah. You have to be Amelim Batorah. Effort. Opening parak of uh, Tehillim says, your interest is in the Torah of Hashem, and then in your Torah, you toil day and night. How does it go from Torah Hashem to Torah So? Begins to describe it as the Torah of God, and then it says Torah So in your Torah. When did that change happen? Rashi quotes Chazal there in the beginning of Tehillim, that it began as Torah Hashem. When you toil, when you struggle, when you make the effort, when you break your teeth, then it becomes yours. You've acquired it. Think about it. In life, what does it mean to acquire something? It means you gave up something precious to get it. Often it's money, the commodity is money. You pay for something, you appreciate it. We all know 
that we much we place much greater value on that which we've paid for than that which we got for free. You worked hard. You earned every penny. You bought something. You appreciate it much more than that which you got for free. When you acquire something, you gave something up to get it. Usually it's money, but it could be time. It could be energy. So we acquire Torah when we have to work to get it, when it's not spoon-fed to us. But we break our teeth on it. We struggle with the Hebrew and look up every word in the dictionary and we have to figure it out. We don't just take the easy way out of reading the English side. So classically, that's what this Gemara Barachos is meant to be. When is Torah Miskayim? Mishamemis Atzmo Allah. A person who kills himself. Work hard. Toil, struggle, break your teeth on it. That's when you get it. But Rav Dessler, Zatzal, has a different pshat. Listen to this great pshat Rav Dessler says. You know what it means. What does it mean that you can only retain Torah? Only the person who is willing to be memis the atzmo in them. What does the word atzmo mean? I, the me. Only the person who kills the ego in them can retain Torah. Only Misha Mamis is Atzmo Allah. You have to be willing to kill your ego. You have to be willing to kill your I in order to make room for a thou, in order to make room for the Ribbon Shalom. So when you come into Torah, you start to study Torah, you're going to come to Harsinai. All of us together on Sunday are going to come stand at Kabbalah Satorah at Harsinai. And if we stand there and we look to impose ourselves on Torah, all right, God, I'll take your Torah, but it's got to work and it's got to conform with my views of the world. I'm going to squeeze and mush and move and I'm going to make sure your Torah conforms with my world's view of philosophy and politics and social issues and everything. I'm going to make sure your Torah works with me. Then we've not really received the Torah. Nor have we really entered a relationship with the Yibbana Shalom. To really be accepting Torah requires us to subjugate the I and to say, I'm a blank slate. I'm a midbar. I am a barren wilderness. I am nothing. Start to draw on me. I want to take Torah and impose it on me, not impose me on Torah. I'm blank. You tell me, Ribbono Shalom, how I'm supposed to look at X and Y and Z. You tell me how to integrate world events. You tell me how to formulate my opinions. Because I'm a midbar. I'm a barren wilderness. I'm blank. I'm humble. I'm nothing. I want Torah to be sketched, ingrained on me and not me try to impose on Torah. We say in Davening on Friday night, Tzadik katamar yifrach. A righteous person flourishes like a tamar, a palm tree. You know, the only tree, the only vegetation that can live in a desert is a palm tree. And why is a palm tree able to live in the desert? Its roots go very, very, very deep. So it's able to draw sustenance from the depths, even though in the desert, in the shallow place, there's nowhere to be irrigated from. So to be a tzaddik, you have to be like a tamar. You have to have the mentality of a midbar. Just like a tamar can live in the desert, we have to be like a midbar in order to be able to receive, in order to be able to receive the Torah. So that's the first lesson of the midbar. So maybe that's the reason, but midbar sinai. The Rashbam gave the reason by Midbar Sinai because now we're talking about the Old Moed. We're talking about the Old Moed. So uh, its, it's geographic location is the Midbar. We're done talking about Har Sinai. But perhaps based on this other Chazal, we can understand the Midbar is something much more. Okay, let's go weiter. So the Torah tells us, it's okay if I lower the AC now a little bit before we pass out in here. Okay. Let's keep going. So the parasha says, Suas Rosh Das B'nai Yisrael. I want you to count the head of all the members of B'nai Yisrael. It's kind of funny. Su actually doesn't mean to count. It means to? To lift. And why, if you're doing a census, would you reference the, how, the head? You're doing a head count. Why are you doing a head count? Do a person count. And how do you count? Rashi says, Da minyan koshevet v'shevet. You need to know the number, the census of every tribe. A person whose mother is from one tribe and father from another, their tribal identity follows the father. Fine. The number of names. Everybody according, every male according to the 
head count. Why are we doing the census right now? Why right now? Is that why we have Shemos? Because of the names? No, Shemos refers to the name of Hashem. That's Shemos. But why, why the counting right now? Why specifically here? Why now? Why now? Why do you need to form a military now? Oh, so there's something so sad about the fact that the count is right now. Something tragic. We've forgotten it because we know the story so well that we think that this is the way the story was always meant to be. But it wasn't. So there's an element of it being so sad. Look at the Rashbam. They were about to go from here where? Right in Teretz Yisrael. They're ready to go. They're mamish ready to go. And when you're 20 years old, you're conscripted into the army. They came from Marsinai. They've got the Mishkan. They're traveling. Boom! Where are they set to go? Right there, it's Israel. They're about to go realize the dream. Establish the homeland. Implement the army. Conquer the other nations. Put together a police force and a judicial system and an agricultural society. And implement all of God's vision. All of His mitzvos. In Parshas Baloscha, the cloud lifts, and where are they heading? No, it's time to go. Our LR flight is taken off. So if at the end of this month they're going to be on their way to Israel, well, they better put together an army, a fledgling slave nation coming out of Egypt, barely caught their breath. You're going to put together an army and conquer these other nations. You need an army. And in order to calculate the strength of your army, how to allocate the resources of your army, in order to achieve that, you need to do a census. You need to know your numbers. So the Rashbam says, why is the Count Dafka right here? Because they're formulating an army. They're about to go in. How tragic. How sad that this whole plan gets derailed. And we know why it gets derailed. Parsha Shlach, the Meraglim, the Meraglim. The Meraglim is what leads to the wandering in the desert so that the plan of going in immediately gets derailed and to a certain degree the census is for nothing. That's the Rashbam's reason about why they're doing the census right now because they should have been heading right in and they needed to know the number in order to formulate the army. The Sforno, similarly, Says the Svarno, the Sidram Sheikh Nisularis Miyad, Ishal Diglo, Bilti Mohama, El Shifno Aknana Mipaneha, Kamosha Asuk Tsasam, Kamoshe Baamro. He says the reason is that forget the army in order to defeat, but just when you enter with your encampment under your flags, that is a very imposing, that is a very intimidating image, and that would have an impact onto itself. Rashi has an altogether different reason. Go back to the first Rashi in Sefer Bamidbar, and Rashi gives a different reason. Zagd Rashi, mitochi basan lefan of mona osam kosha'ah. Why is HaKadosh Baruch counting them right now? Rashi gives an altogether different reason. You know why HaKadosh Baruch is counting them right now? Because He loves them. And you know what you do with something you love? You count it. Some people love their money, so they look at their phone, they go online to their account, their portfolio, Every three seconds, they're checking the stock. They love their money. They're counting, 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 counting. Other people love their baseball card collection. They're going through it over and over again. The sticker collection, the napkin collection. Some people even love their children. So they're constantly looking and counting their children. Kosh loves Klal Yisrael. Mitochi basan. Because of his affection and love for us, he counts us all the time. manam. When we left Egypt, he counted us. When we fell at the Egel, he counted us. To know how many were left. And when he wants to dwell within us, he counts us. So the first of Nisan, the Mishkan, was erected. And the first of Iyar, he counted us. So each of these was a reason to count us. So the question is, if the reason he counted us was out of his love for us, or this now time is after the eagle he counts us, why does Levi have to be counted separately? Why does Levi have to be counted separately? So Rashi tells us basically this generation 
is not going to make it into the into Eretz Yisrael. And the Leviim are. Look at Rashi when the Leviim are counted separately. Hold on. Where is this Rashi? Rashi says, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Memtes. Achas Matalevi Losef Kod, says Rashi, Kedayu Ligion Shalmelech Lios Nimna Levado. First pshat is, this is a special legion of the king. So when you take your military census, you have the general army, and then if you have a, a elite unit of the army, you count the elite unit separately. So Leviim are the elite unit of the army, and they're counted separately. That's the first pshat. Dover Acher, Tzipa HaKadosh Baruch Hu She'asid Alamor Gzeira Al-Kol Nimnim Iben Esm Shonov Amala She'yamusu B'Midbar. Kadosh Baruch Hu foresees that all those who are counted among the 20-year-old and up, they're going to die in the desert. So Amar Al-Yu'elu B'Chlal, the Leviim will not be guilty, the Leviim won't suffer that consequence. They can enter the land. The Levim did not fail with the Egel. They belong to me. They'll enter the land. Therefore, they must be counted separately. Asks Rav Chaim Shmulevitz in Sichas Musar. I don't understand. The Almighty, the Ribbon Shlom, the Omnipotent, the Infinite can do anything. He can't count Levi among all Klai Yisrael and still allow them to enter the land. Why would counting them among Klal Yisrael automatically mean that they couldn't enter the land? Right? Rashi says, why is Levi counted separately? Because all the rest are not going to enter the land as a result of the Egel, even though we think of it as a result of the Meraglim. But the tribe of Levi didn't participate in the Egel. They're going to enter the land. Therefore, they have to be counted. Just count them all together. Mathematically, it's more efficient. Count them all together and still let Levi enter the land. What's going on? And he says a phenomenal insight. And it's so true in life. And this is so relevant to what we said earlier from Rav Avigdor Nevensal, his pshat in Oyla Rasha Oyla Shechena. Because our worth, our value, is impacted tremendously by whom we choose to associate with. If we identify, we associate with, we surround ourselves by people. Even if we are not guilty of what they do, they bring us down. Remember as a kid, you don't remember. If you were a mischievous kid, maybe you were with a bad crowd in a bad moment when they got caught doing something bad and you plead, I, I didn't do it. I was just standing there. I was just watching. I didn't do it. I wasn't guilty of it. And what does the principal or the teacher or your parents say? I don't know. You're guilty by association. You're guilty by association. Our worth, our value our consequences impacted by whom we choose to associate with by association. By the way, it's true in the financial world too. It's an amazing thing about the stock market. Take a particular company that belongs to a particular industry and that company could have nothing new about it, but its evaluation can go up or down billions of dollars in one day just as a result of the sector it belongs to. So a company is a member of the tech sector, or the banking sector, the real estate sector, the biotech sector, whatever sector, and that sector is moving one direction or the other that day, it'll go up or it'll go down. Ah, it didn't release any new financials, trials, results, nothing new about the company. But it lost $2 billion in its evaluation that day just because it belongs to a different sector. We too say to Malevitz, we choose our sector and our value, our worth goes up or down based on it. Here, it could go down. Because who has to count Levi separately because to include Levi among the rest of Klai Yisrael would make them guilty by association. And if they were guilty by association, they would have to suffer the consequences. That's guilt by association. But you could also have merit by association. You know how you have schus, merit by association, says Rechaim Shmulevitz? It's called tefillah b'tzibur. It's called davening with a minion. When you daven at home, a Kodesh Baruch Hu looks at you and he says, let me see whether you're worthy or not. Bring me their file. Let me see what's going on. You come to Shul, you daven with a minion, the merits of everyone complement one another. And those merits complement one another, our entire sector 
our entire evaluation goes up. It's a very powerful, very important lesson. That's why Levi, according to Rechaim Shalevitz, had to be counted had to be counted separately. So why are they counted here? The Rashbam and Tzvorno say, because what was supposed to happen is they were going to go into Eretz Yisrael, and they needed an army. According to Rashi, no, they're counted here. It's chiba, it's love, it's affection, though ultimately the members of this count are not going to go into Eretz Yisrael. Okay, let's keep going. A little bit more. How are they counted? How are they counted? They're counted b'mispar shemos. B'mispar shemos. It's a very interesting formulation. B'mispar shemos. What does that mean, b'mispar shemos? B'mispar means number. Shemos means names. Do numbers and names complement one another? Rav Pincus, Rav Shimshon David Pincus has a sefer on Parsha. I quoted it last week in Shul. And in his sefer on Chumash, he says these two words are a contradiction. A number objectifies a person. A number sees someone as part of something much larger. A name is deeply personal. A name speaks of the individual identity. Right? Think about it. There's, a, there's an element of affection when you use someone's name. They're not just an object, they become a person when you use someone's name. It's, it's, it's affectionate. I remember when you're dating, the first you use someone's name, you say their name to them, there's an element of affection in that. You see them as a person. Next time you go to Publix and you're checking out, instead of just saying thank you, look at the name tag of the person and say thank you and say their name, you'll see their face light up. Because the rest of the day they've been invisible to the entire world. No one notices them. They might as well be a robot working the cash register as the people checking out yap on their cell phone rudely, not even noticing that there's a human being in front of them. And if when you check out, you use their name, you will see their face light up. A name is deeply personal. So says Rapinkis, it's a stereo, it's a contradiction. Bimispar shemos. The number of names. Which is it? Are we a number or are we a name? The Haftorah of Bamidbar also follows the theme of census and numbers and counting. And the Haftorah says, The prophet Hoshea says, The number of Bnei Yisrael will be like the sand of the sea, which can neither be measured nor counted. So the Medrash says, that too is a steer, it's a contradiction. How can the bracha be that it can neither be measured nor counted when it begins by saying, Mispar Bnei Yisrael? The number of Bnei Yisrael is so great it can either be... It's, it, which is it? Is it a number or numberless? Can it be counted or is it countless? Can they be measured or measureless? It's a contradiction in the Pasuk in the Haftorah. So the Tzvah Semes has a great pshat. Listen to the Tzvah Semes pshat. It's a continuation of Unity Day from yesterday. Torah by Brody that we held... Yantav Sheni Shogolios, we hold two days of Unity Day. So Svasama says the following. He says, the element of being a number is raised, is elevated to becoming numberless when you believe in unity. When things are apart, when they are disparate, when they are individual, they're subject to being counted. But when something is united, it becomes inseparable. It's indistinguishable. It becomes one, and then it can't be counted. It's numberless. And that is totally, that depends on our attitude. If you want to be an individual, then you're subject to being a number. You could be counted. You could be evaluated. But if you see yourself as part of the whole, and this is the theme that we've been talking about all day, in terms of a community, shechenim, a number, if you see yourselves as part of something greater, then that unity transcends the individuals, and then you're not subject to being counted. You're not vulnerable to the count. So, you know, the Jewish people are given a bracha once to be like the sands of the beach and another time to be like the stars in the sky. What does it mean? Which is it? So the Sfas Semes says, it's really both. Think about it for a second. A star, we hope our children are stars. How do you describe Steph Curry? He's a superstar. Right, LeBron, not so much a superstar. <laughs> a great athlete, 
a popular celebrity, they're called a star. An up-and-coming is called a shining star. Right? To give someone a bracha, to be a star, is for them to be fantastic, to be exceptional, to shine brightly, to rise above, to stand out. Sand is exactly the opposite. A grain of sand is negligible. It's indistinguishable. A grain of sand on its own is nothing. But if you take a grain with another grain, with another grain, with another grain, you have the beach, the entire beach. And the beach is critical. If we didn't have the sand and the beach to protect the land from the water, it would be overrun. The beach is a formidable, the sand of the beach is a formidable uh, object. But it's only because all of those sand grains standing together. So the Svasamis, the Ger Rebbe says, the bracha to Avram is to be like a star. Be distinct, shine brightly. Make your own unique contribution and your own individual impact on the world. But at the same time, according to our Haftorah, if you remain an individual, you're limited, you're countable, you're numbered. So at the same time, be like the sand, part of something greater than yourself. A unity of purpose, a harmonious mission. An organic unit cannot be counted. Rosh Hashiva from Kerem Biyavna, Rav Chaim Yaakov Goldvich Zatzal, took this pshat of the Sfas Emes and he said, that's what it means in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But, if I'm only for myself, what am I? He says, that's pshat. Every person was created to be a shining star. Illuminate the world. Be different and unique. I'm unique. If I'm not going to be me, who's going to be me? If I'm not going to become that star, and every star has a name, is unique, then who's going to express what only I can bring to this world, if not me? But at the same time, if all I care about is being a shining star, and rising above everybody else, and standing out, and getting all the attention, then money. Then what am I? What's it all about? What have I accomplished? It's a grape shot in Hillel's statement, So says Rapinkis, we're both a number and a name at the same time. That's the pshat in our Pasuk. We are a number and a name. We're a number in the sense that we are a star. We have something individual, unique to contribute to the world. I'm sorry, we're a number in that we don't have identity. But at the same time, we're a name in that we are somebody and something very uh, special. It's striking that balance between blind obedience with no personality or creativity and individuality, and at the same time being shameless, having a name that differentiates us. That's our task. That's our goal as Klal Yisrael. So that is the theme of our, of our Parsha, the notion of individuality within community. We talked about Rabbi Yaakov having a flag, each tribe... Each encampment had its own icon, its own logo, its own flag. But that diversity did not lead to divisiveness. Why? The unity was that at the center of the whole encampment was the Mishkan, was the Almoid, was the Kodesh HaKadoshim, was the Aron HaKodesh, Aron Abris, were the Luchos. At the center of it all, we have to be united in mission, and then there's room for all the diversity in the world. Ruvain sat next to Kahas. Ruvain was not guarded. And look what happened as a result. Levi couldn't be counted in Kal Yisrael. If Levi were counted with the rest, guilt by association. And here, star and the sand, a number and a name, it's finding our balance, the blend between individuality together with the greater whole. Have a great week and a great Yantif.